Welcome to Creeps and Crime Storytime. My name is Charlie and today it's just me and I think it's always going to be just me. So you probably noticed that there's been a break so I've not done any recording since March. I want to say it was March. Um... The long story short is that Sophie's decided that she doesn't really want to do the podcast anymore, which is fine. She's got her own things that she's passionate about. Um, So yeah, it's just going to be me. I took a little break because Sophie wasn't really sure what she was doing, so I was waiting for her to make her mind up. Um, And she's made her mind up, so... But I'm going to keep doing it by myself because I love doing it. I'm very passionate about true crime. I'm very passionate about talking about it. This podcast is my little baby and I'm going to keep doing it for me. It's probably not going to be as funny because Sophie's really fucking hilarious and the dynamic of it is going to obviously be very different because instead of telling Sophie a story every week, I'm just telling you. But I hope that you like it anyway. I hope that you learn some things and that we go on a little... a little story time journey together obviously as always message me if you want to talk about true crime because now i don't have anyone else to talk to about it so i don't have any announcements apart from that huge giant one so let's get started so this time we're going to be talking about jody who's in truth if if you've been in the true crime space for any decent length of time i would be shocked if you hadn't heard about jody who's in truth She's, her name is a name that most of us have heard of, even if you don't know, even if you don't know much about the case, even if you don't know details, you've probably heard of her. Um, Whereas lots of missing people are strangers to the public and we only get to know them after they vanish, Jodie was known before she disappeared. Jodie was a local news anchor in Mason City, Iowa, and in 1995 when she went missing, Her local community had Jodie in their living rooms every morning, keeping people company and giving them the news of the day while they got ready for work and got the kids ready for school. Jodie was a local celebrity and she was loved by not only her family and friends, but by her entire community. I personally think that we see people on TV as being invincible, like they don't live in the same world as we do. But this case brought home that people on TV and in the news were people just like everybody else and they could be vulnerable too. This case is really high up in my case list. So I have a notebook with all of my episode ideas in. And at the moment, I've got a a few hundred, I think. And this is like the fourth one down. It's a case that I'm really interested in and I really care a lot about. So I was very much looking forward to getting into it and sharing it with you. For those of us that don't know Jodie, I'll give you a little bit of background on who she is. Before I get properly started, I do want to acknowledge the efforts and hard work put into reporting on this case by Scott Fuller. His third season of his podcast Frozen Truth was focused on Jodie and her story, and his efforts got him invited to be part of the Find Jodie team, and he has made a new podcast with them all about this case. If you want a super deep dive on Jodie's case after you're done listening to me, I recommend listening to Scott because he's got so much information and so much experience. And yeah, if if you decide that you find this case interesting, he's definitely the way to go. 
So let's get started. Jodie was born in 1968 in Minnesota, and she was the youngest daughter of Maurice and Imogen Husentrude. Jodie was outgoing and passionate, and she loved golf. She actually won tournaments for the state in both 1985 and 1986. As well as golf, she had another goal in mind. She wanted to be on TV. But she didn't just want to be famous for the sake of it. It's not like she wanted to just be a celebrity. She specifically wanted to be an anchor on national news. Jodie had her goal and she worked for it for years. Sometimes people can be a bit flaky with what they want. I definitely can be. I have a billion hobbies. I always have a a million things I want to do. I've never really had a set goal of what I specifically wanted to spend my life doing, but I know that I tend to get really passionate about lots of different things all at the same time. But she wasn't like this at all. She, when she was finished with high school, she went to St. Cloud State University and studied mass communication and speech communication. And it's really clear from looking at what she studied that she was looking straight ahead. She was working towards her goal and wanted to get qualified in the right field. And Jodie looked perfect for the news as well. She was quite petite. She stood somewhere between five foot three and five foot four, and she weighed about 120 pounds. She had shoulder-length blonde hair, which was usually styled in that cute, like, early 90s fluffy blow-dried kind of way, and a huge, cute smile, and she was fucking adorable. And if she was on my TV telling me the news every day, I would feel like I had a bestie in my living room. She wasn't out of university that long when she landed her first broadcasting job and she worked as an intern in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for KGAN, which is actually an affiliate for CBS. And after a while of this internship, she moved back to Minnesota and managed to stay in the industry working for KSAX in Alexandria, which is an affiliate of ABC. Her third job, which would be her final one, was back in Iowa and her way, and she worked her way up from intern to morning news anchor. So her end goal was to be an anchor of the national news, but for now, a small town news anchor was a good start. It wasn't her dream, but she was on her way. So Jodie worked the morning and the noon slots. She would go on the air at 6am and welcome the people of Mason City into a brand new day and she would stick around and then read the news again at noon. Then, the day would be hers. This was her set schedule, so she had a routine, and this is important. She would set her alarm for about three in the morning, get up, take a shower, get dressed, and do her hair and makeup, then be at the news studio for about 4am to prep and set up for the first airing of the day at six. I love me an early morning, but that sounds fucking brutal. I know lots of people get up at three and four in the morning for work every day, but I couldn't do it. I think of myself as a morning person, but that's a whole other level of morning person. And the thing is, Jodie wouldn't be able to get to the news station for 4am every single day. She is human, and sometimes she overslept. Not like all the time, but it happened a few times. And it happened to her work buddy and producer Amy Coons as well. So the two of these ladies had a little agreement going on. If one of them hadn't got to work at 4am, the other would call them on the phone and wake them up. Both Jodie and Amy had done it for the other a few times, and as a little system, it actually worked quite well. Jodie had never missed a day of work. She loved her job, she loved being on the news. 
She wasn't a hard-hitting investigative journalist who covered awful stories and asked tough questions. She told the morning news with a smile and a laugh. She preferred the soft, very American kind of wholesome news telling. She never missed a day of work until the 27th of June, 1995. It was a Tuesday. It was 4am and Jodie hadn't arrived at work. Amy gave her a ring and a very sleepy Jodie answered the phone. She had clearly just been woken up. Jodie hurriedly told Amy that she would be at the studio very soon, in probably only about 10 minutes. Jodie lived very close to her work and it probably only took between 5 and 10 minutes to drive there. To be honest, 10 minutes is probably pushing it because it was it was a mile away. Whenever Jodie got woken up by Amy's phone calls, it never took her very long to actually get to work. She would usually rush in, fresh out of the shower with wet hair, and do her hair and makeup at the studio. She actually had a large tote bag that she carried around a lot of the time to work that her colleagues saw her hauling around regularly, and it was full of work stuff that she might need. So she'd keep a hairdryer, makeup, her address book, purse, maybe some accessories, hairbrush, notebooks, floppy disks, CDs. Obviously now we can store the contents of an address book, notebooks, floppy disks and CDs just on one smartphone. But in the 90s you needed to carry all kinds of shit with you to get things done the same way. Anyway, so Jodie quickly showered, then dashed out of her apartment, hair still wet, we presume, with her usual giant bag of stuff. Her car, a red Mazda Miata, was parked very close to the front door of her apartment. As a matter of fact, the distance between her apartment door and her car is approximately 12 paces, so incredibly close. However, Jodie never made it inside her car. She never made it to work that morning, and she never read the news on her usual 6am slot. After a while, Amy knew that Jodie should have shown up by now. She thought that perhaps Jodie had fallen back asleep, so she called her again. No answer. It was getting closer to 6am, and Jodie had never just not shown up before. Not knowing what to do, the staff at KIMT decided to put Amy on as a backup, so Amy read the news at six. It must have been really weird for her sitting in the chair, pretending like nothing was wrong, trying to be as normal as possible, because you're on live TV, so you have to act like everything's fine, but knowing just below the surface that something might badly be wrong and feeling that sick pit in your stomach. It is just awful to think about. Once it hit 7am and there was still no sign of Jodie and no answer on the phone at home, the police were called. This had never happened before, and even if she'd been late a few times, she'd never missed a broadcast even once. Once that hour-long news segment was over, Amy got off the air and told her colleagues that the police had been notified and a wellness check performed. Her first thought wasn't that Jodie had been kidnapped, but anything could have happened. Maybe she'd been in an accident, maybe she'd fallen at home and hit her head. There was all kinds of possibilities and she was just generally worried. Police arrived at Jodie's apartment at 7.16am. The scene that presented itself before they even got into Jodie's apartment was not a good one. It was very obvious that something bad had happened. Firstly, Jodie was not there. 
The last person to hear her voice, apart from the person responsible for whatever had happened to her, was Amy when she talked on the phone with her that morning. Jodie has never been seen again. Secondly, the scene around Jodie's car was immediately concerning. Several items were found scattered around the car. A hairdryer, her car key, which was slightly bent, a pair of red high-heeled shoes, hairspray, and a pair of gold earrings. This was, of course, some of what she normally carried around in her massive tote bag, but the bag itself has never been found, and neither has any of its other contents that we know were probably in there. I've seen some articles online say that her purse was found, but I don't think this is the case. I've not been able to find any verified sources that say it is the case, and the Find Jody team have referenced the fact that her wallet has never been recovered. It's some of the contents of the bag, not the bag itself, or the wallet, that were found. So, the way the parking lot is laid out, you obviously have several rows of cars, and the yellow chalk circles outlining where these items were found in the crime scene photos are between the row of cars where where Jodie's Mazda was parked, closest to the apartment building, and the row in front of it, the second row away from the building. And these, the circles where the evidence was found, it's, it's literally a trail leading away from her car. One of the most interesting pieces of evidence found on the floor is the key to her car itself. I said a minute ago that it is slightly bent. It's commonly believed that Jodie put the key into her car door to open it when she was grabbed and dragged away. The force of her being yanked away from the car actually caused the key to bend. Some articles state that the key was found inside the lock on the car door, but photos from the crime scene show the key on the ground next to the car where it fell, circled in yellow chalk to mark where it was discovered. There is also a photo of what looks like drag marks on the ground. Police believe that Jodie's heels dug into the ground as she was pulled away, leaving drag marks from her car. I don't know if she was wearing the red heels and they came off as she was dragged away, or if she was wearing another pair of shoes and carrying these to put on at work and drop them in the struggle. But it is worth mentioning, I suppose. I have found a couple of places online that mentioned that on top of her car, which was a convertible and had a canvas roof, there was a print in the morning dew of where her head hit the canvas, and you could see where her hair had disturbed the dew. However, this is just places that say that witnesses at the time have described it. I haven't been able to find anything more concrete than that. I haven't been able to find any police reports that mention this imprint of her hair. I haven't been able to find any photos that show it, um, just kind of hearsay comments in articles, but it's been mentioned more than once. So I don't know if it's one of those things where someone says it one time and then everyone else just kind of reports that like it's fact or if it is actually something that was there. The car itself hadn't been opened and nothing was amiss inside. It wasn't damaged in any way, although apparently one of the wing mirrors was bent out slightly. Police also found a palm print on the car, although to this day this has never been matched to anyone. There was also a hair found at the scene, but police have been very quiet about it. They only ever revealed that one hair was found, and when asked if the hair had a root attached to it during a um, a news conference, the, the officer doing the press interview quickly changed the subject. The police moved to inside her apartment. 
And Jodie always kept her apartment very clean. This is something that people who knew her can attest to. One topic of contention is Jodie's bed. The bed had been made. Some people have argued that if she overslept for work and was in a massive hurry to leave, that she would have that she wouldn't have stopped to make her bed. Or does this indicate that someone else was in the apartment with her who made the bed after they finished abducting Jodie? The thing is, the bed isn't made to a perfect standard, like in a hotel where everything is tucked in and really neat. The covers were pulled up to the pillows, so it looks kind of, like, tidy. But if you were running late, would you take the time to make your bed? I think even when I'm running late, I kind of, like, throw the covers up to where the pillows are and just kind of think, meh, that's kind of close enough. Um, But yeah, if she had a thing about making sure that her bed looked kind of okay before she left, then yeah, she would take a second to do it. Especially if your workplace was only a five, ten minute drive away, even if you're late, you'd probably still kind of just like flick the covers up. Um, But that has been a topic that people have discussed to death in this case. People get really obsessed about the bed and if that means there was someone there and it's 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 interesting um like I don't think I would stop to like make it properly but I would give everything a bit of a shuffle in the right direction I think um there was something else that indicated that if Jodie didn't have company that morning she might have had company recently there were two wine glasses by the sink and also beer cans in the sink and I've heard from different places that it's a brand of beer that Jodie didn't necessarily drink herself The wine glasses, maybe she just didn't wash the glass from the previous night and poured herself a fresh glass and ended up with two that needed a clean. It could be. Um, The beer cans, some people think these are harder to explain away. But I know in Minnesota at the time, they did a thing where if um, if you took empty aluminium cans to a recycling center, they'd give you money in exchange for your cans, which is a really good idea and I love that kind of thing myself but um and I've seen people online say oh you know Jodie earned okay money she was a news anchor why would she like have beer cans in the sink um why would she have left them in the sink she it's not as if she needs spare change from the recycling center and then other people have chipped in who actually lived in the area that said actually it was such a normal thing to do that everyone just kind of did it without thinking about it it was yeah, just like sorting through your recycling like that at the time and taking them to the center, it would be it would be weirder if you didn't do it. So I just think that's that's pretty interesting, and I like I, I like that. Um, but yeah, some people think that the beer cans have meant that she had someone over, but we don't know. Um, another thing is that the toilet seat was left up, and we don't know why. So if the seat or the rim of the toilet was ever tested for biological material or prints of any kind, that information has never been released. Obviously, there are possibilities. So she could have cleaned the toilet and left the seat up after it was clean. She could have needed to be sick and lifted it up. Or a police officer could have contaminated the crime scene and needed to pee while he was there. Or she could have had a male visitor or the person that's responsible for her disappearance in her apartment. If she did have a consensual male guest the previous night, no one has ever come forward to admit that they were there. So the toilet seat has been discussed even more than the bed being made and even more than the cans in the sink. Um, Some people are absolutely certain 
that the toilet seat being up means that she had a boyfriend over the night before um, and that he left it up. And some people are convinced that she actually was taken in her apartment and then the struggle continued outside. And some people like me believe that it's kind of just one of those things that doesn't really matter. It's kind of, it's a it's a really tiny detail and it only looks like a big deal because she's gone. And that if she was still here, obviously nobody would think twice about a toilet seat being up because like, what if you needed to be sick? What if, what if you were cleaning, cleaning it and you just left it up because you didn't think about it? There's, there's all kinds of really normal innocuous reasons why you would leave a toilet seat up. But because of the events that happened and everything surrounding it, people think that this is a really huge deal. And maybe it is. Maybe it's a massive deal. Maybe the key to the whole case is in this toilet seat. But personally, I don't think so. Although I am aware that my opinion is absolutely bullshit and it doesn't matter because I have no qualifications to do with law enforcement whatsoever. And pretty much from the very beginning of this case it was identified as being one where foul play was involved, which is excellent. Because so many times when women go missing, people don't take it seriously. Um, but it's it's really good here that people took it seriously straight away. The police started searching right away. The investigation started immediately. Nobody thought that Jodie had taken off on her own. Police often get bogged down figuring out if someone's run away or if they wanted to start a new life somewhere else, and this wasn't the case here. Nobody thought that Jodie had taken herself out of the picture. In what must have been a surreal moment for the newsreaders at KIMT, they reported on their own colleague's disappearance on the midday news broadcast. This, of course, is the second slot of the day that Jodie herself should have been hosting. The town of Mason City came together immediately. Everybody knew Jodie. Everybody loved her. Like a real, genuine love. It's often said anecdotally that Jodie would take 20 or 30 minutes to get through the grocery store as people would stop her to talk. Everybody knew her face. Everybody sat with her in the morning to listen while they drank their coffee, made school lunches for the kids, and got ready to face their day. She was the familiar, warm presence in her community. And she was gone. Somebody had taken her, somebody had hurt her, and she needed their help. People started searching immediately. By the time afternoon came of that same day, the FBI were already involved. Her apartment was close to the Winnebago River, and divers were in there searching, and police dogs were up and down the banks. Search teams combed the surrounding countryside. But, since the 27th of June, 1995, when the police found Jodie's possessions in an empty parking lot, no trace whatsoever has ever been found of Jodie Hoosentrude. If it's okay with you, I'd like to skip back a little bit and talk about her last known few days. Despite having a very strict schedule in terms of being awake at 3am every day for work, Jodie managed to pack in a pretty decent social life. And June was a busy month for her, starting with her birthday, starting with her birthday even, which was June the 5th. She'd just turned 27. A few days after her birthday, Jodie got a new car, her Red Master, which she tried and failed to get into to go to work on the day she was taken. 
It was a small, low-to-the-ground sports car and was a bright cherry red. And it fit with her peppy, happy personality and she must have looked adorable driving around town in it. Adorable and very recognisable. Lots of places will tell you that Jodie was gifted this car by someone else, but the official Find Jodie team set up by her family insists that this isn't true. Jodie bought the car herself. She bought it directly through a salesman who worked at a dealership in town, probably so then he could get like more money instead of just getting commission from the dealership. Um, she was still in the process of getting all the paperwork transferred over to her when she disappeared, and her mum was able to take ownership of it after it got released by the police because she did buy it and it did belong to her. So I just wanted to give that a bit of clearing up. So she bought her shiny new red car early June, and I like to think that was a little birthday treat to herself. A girl's gotta have a little treat. So on the 10th of June, one of Jodie's friends threw her a birthday party at a bar called Sully's in Clear Lake. And I want to talk about this for a second. There is a video taken of the birthday party, and Jodie and her buddies look super cute, and they're all wearing little party hats, you know, like the pointy ones, and there's balloons and decorations, and it just looks so wholesome and so lovely. So I know I'm hopping about all over the place at the moment. I'm kind of jumping around time-wise, but I'm going to interrupt my timeline to talk about the friend that threw the party for her. I, I know, I know. But the next couple of weeks involve this particular friend a lot, and I feel like it'll be important for context if we know who he is first. So this guy is called John Van Sice. He's 22 years older than Jodie, and had known Jodie for about seven or eight months at this point. He used to live in the same apartment building as Jodie, the key apartments, and he moved in there following a split from his wife. He worked as a salesman selling seed, because in Iowa there's a lot of farming businesses, so selling farm supplies and seeds is probably quite profitable. And he had a decent social life as well, so he must have been doing okay for himself. We do know that, you know, the seed business must have been quite lucrative at the time. He seemed to have a lot of disposable income. John had met Jodie in the apartment buildings, and the two became friends. He eventually moved into a house nearby, but the two stayed in touch and remained friends. If you know anything about behavioural terminology, you'll know what I mean when I say that John love-bombed her. He spoiled her. He always wanted to take her places and do nice things with her. And it was so obvious to everyone around, and it's obvious to me 27 years later, that he was absolutely infatuated with the pretty young anchorwoman. He told the media in interviews after her disappearance that it was a fatherly, daughterly feeling that he had towards her, and that he loved her as much and in the same way as his own grown children. I'm calling bullshit on it, John. I'm fucking calling bullshit. There is absolutely no way. Like, no way whatsoever. I've seen the way that he talks about her. I've seen the videos of him interacting with her. No, absolutely not. He had grown children of his own at the time. And I'm just saying, if he treated his own kids in the way that he treated Jodie and the way that he looked at her, if he looked at his own kids like that, then that man needs some serious fucking looking into because it was not a fatherly feeling. And it was so incredibly obvious and all her friends knew. Everyone knew. 
that he was in love with her and it was weird and creepy. And also worthy of note, on the invitations to the party, he had he actually had written on it that the party was thrown by John Van Syce and friends. So he didn't say, oh, this is your invitation to a surprise party for Jodie by Jodie's friends. He had it on the invitation. This is your invitation to a surprise party thrown by John Van Syce and friends. He had to let everyone know that it was him throwing the party for Jodie. Only he cared enough to throw her a surprise birthday party. And in this home video of the birthday party, which you can watch, I will put a link to it in the show notes, there are a lot of moments where Jodie is smiling and happy. And in the photos, she's surrounded by her friends. And John is there in a lot of the photos. He's a big guy. He's way taller than Jodie and he's quite broad. At one point in the video, he bodily picks her up in like a princess carry. And you can tell that it's really easy for him to lift her and carry her around. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it was effortless for him to lift her and I don't think she was expecting it. So while she wasn't struggling against him, she wasn't helping either. So obviously when someone picks you up, if you're consenting to it and if you're okay with it, you will subconsciously sort of like shift your body weight so it's easier for that person to hold you. But if you're not expecting it, you're not going to do that. You're just going to kind of be a bit of a dead weight almost and it didn't faze him at all. He just picked her up and started carrying her around. And in the video, when he picks her up, you can see her immediately move to hold her dress down so the camera doesn't accidentally get up her skirt. And some people looking into the case now think that John lifting her like this without her express permission was not appropriate because it could have left her in a rather immodest position. And I don't disagree with that. Some friendships, it's okay and you know where the line is. And obviously, I've never met either John or Jodie, so I can't comment on the boundaries within their friendship. But I I do think it's important to discuss all of these things, um, especially when you can see it on video. And some things just seem a little bit inappropriate and weird. So in one show that I watched, former FBI profiler Jim Clemente, by the way, just in case, hi Jim, I think you're really amazing, commented that he realised that the camera caught John a few times giving dirty looks to men who were talking to Jodie. So if Jodie was chatting with or dancing with another man at the party, there are a few times when you can clearly see John in the background staring at them really intensely and I've seen it and he does and obviously that's not concrete evidence of anything but it all adds up to paint this picture of their relationship. So there's a book called Dead Air that was written by Beth Bednar that's all about this case and in this book she mentions that the night of the party Jodie went back to John's house afterwards and slept on his couch. Fine, we've all slept on friends' couches. Apparently she was too tipsy to drive home from Sully's, so a friend took her keys so she couldn't drunk drive. Great, fantastic, responsible. But Beth also says that Jodie confided in a friend that that night she thinks that John almost date-raped her. I don't know what almost date-raped means. I don't know whether that means he tried to put something in a drink but couldn't get it in the drink. I don't know if it means he put something in a drink but it didn't work or or what what exactly that means. But Jodie mentioned that to a friend and 
To me, that's a pretty fucking big deal. And I've seen this mentioned in a few places online where people discuss this case, but I haven't seen this mentioned as much as I think it ought to be. Maybe he orchestrated the situation, got her too drunk so she would have to stay on the couch with him, and then he could make a move. Who knows? We we don't fucking know. Anyway, Jody and John were still amazingly close friends. Whatever happened at the birthday party didn't put Jody off enough to cut ties with him. I really wish that we could just ask her what happened and why she still felt okay being around him after that, but we can't and we'll never know. So just three days after the birthday party on June the 13th, John takes Jodie to the Glenn Miller Orchestra. It was just the two of them, so perhaps John saw Jodie spoiling her around her birthday as kind of like dates. Um, Jodie told friends and was insistent to her friends that she only viewed John as a friend. She was insistent this is platonic. But obviously that doesn't mean that these feelings were exactly the same on both sides. We know for sure that she was there because fans of her morning news segment recognised her at the concert and they were delighted to see her because she was so nice. Sometime this week, Jodie's friends have revealed that she might have been getting the impression that John wanted to be more than friends. So some of Jodie's friends have said afterwards that the two of them had a conversation about where they stood, and John admitted that he wanted more than a friendship with her, which is not a fucking surprise to anyone. He cared deeply about her and was very attracted to her. What a fucking shock. And this is all according to her friends at the time. So according to an episode of Up and Vanished, Jodie felt bad that she was disappointing her friend, who she cared about, and she wrote him a nice card to let him down easily. Because that's the kind of nice person she is. Like, if, if some, like creepy old dude that you're friends with is hitting on you and trying to get you in bed and being all like oh stay on my couch it's fine I definitely haven't put anything in your drink and he's like oh I really love you I have feelings for you she's so nice and sweet and soft that she wrote him a card to spare his feelings and to let him down gently and if that doesn't tell you what kind of understanding empathetic person that Jodie Hughes and True was I don't think there's anything else in this episode that I've written, that will tell you. But also, can I just say, we don't have to be that nice to creepy men. If you have a creepy man, I'm just going to go off for a sec, this is not scripted, but if you have a creepy guy in your life that's being inappropriate and weird and gross and entitled, because John Van Syce, he seemed entitled and no man is entitled to your time or your body or your kindness and you don't have to be polite if you're turning someone down. You, you don't have to be. You, you don't owe anyone anything. If you want to say no, you just say no. No thanks. I'm not interested. Anyway, sorry. Right, so I'm just going to... Where am I up to? Um, yeah, so there's a private investigator called Steve Ridge. I don't know much about him, to be honest, but he has done some work on Jodie's case in the last few years. And he says that on the 17th of June, Jodie met a new guy and she went on a couple of dates with him. I've not found anything to back this up, but again, I want to mention that that's what I've found. I don't know if it's true or not, but there is some thoughts that maybe she got like a new boyfriend. I do know that on the 17th and the 18th of June, Jodie was at Clear Lake with some friends, including John Van Syce. If she did meet an interesting new guy on the 17th, she might have met him at the lake. 
Although, like I said, I couldn't find anything to back this up. The following weekend, Jody, John, his adult son, and their friends Tammy Baker and Annie Cruz went to a trip. Uh, went on a trip to Iowa City and did some water skiing, which sounds cool as fuck. So John had a boat, and I feel like he wanted to show off being like this cool guy with a boat by taking all of his pretty young female friends, including Jody, who he always seemed to want to impress, water skiing. So on the Saturday, they had a great time, although Jody and Tammy left the group partway through the day to go dancing on a boat of some local guys. And there is a videotape of this, which is confirmed by the police. So we haven't seen the videotape. The videotape has not been made public, but the police have said, yes, this videotape exists. Yes, we've seen it. And on this tape, um, Jody is dancing on this boat with these local with these local guys. Um, the guys who made the tape and who owned this second boat have been cleared of anything dodgy. They haven't had anything to do with this. Although Tammy has said that John was in a pissy mood all night because Jody left to go dance on some other dude's boat. The existence of this video was only made known to the public in 2019, although, like I said, it's not been released yet and is still in the hands of the authorities. But yeah, so John Van Size was not happy about Jody going off to dance with other guys. While we're talking about John and his fucking boat, I just want to have a second. So, does anyone want to guess what he named his boat? If you guess that he named his boat Jody, you would be absolutely fucking correct. So his boat, it wasn't like a big yacht or anything. It was like literally like a little, a little boat that you'd go like sailing in with some buddies and drink some stuff and whatever. Um, and these kinds of boats didn't always have like official names and I don't think his boat had anything on the side of it. Um, but he did say on an interview, which was on the news, that you can see. And also mutual friends have anecdotally backed this up at the time, that he would refer to his boat as Jody because she was always like really happy and really sweet and he's like what what better name is there for a boat than Jody because Jody is so great and it's just can I also say that if he loved Jody a woman that he's known for seven months if he loved her in a fatherly way just as much as he loved his own children why why wouldn't he name his boat after one of his kids why would he name his boat after this woman that he's only known for seven months? And it's like, I wonder if it's got anything to do with the fact that she's really nice and really sweet and really hot. And he's going through a divorce and he's moved out of his house with his family into some little fucking apartment and he's probably sleeping on a mattress and there's this really hot woman who lives in the apartment building. And I wonder if it's anything to do with that or like a midlife crisis but no, apparently he just loves her in a fatherly way. And it's like, yeah, that, that sounds that sounds legit. Anyway, so the group stayed in John's son's apartment because, you know, he's old enough to have grown sons who have apartments. So they stayed there and they were hoping to go out on the water again on Sunday. But the weather was a bit crappy and they couldn't. So they ended up going home early. And Jodie spent the rainy evening writing letters in her apartment. Which, to be honest, sounds like my idea of a perfect evening. Because think about it, you've got like rain on the windows. You can have the lights down, maybe candles. And you're writing letters and just, oh my god. There's like nothing better than that. And that's what she was doing. So while she was writing letters, she also wrote in her journal and this would be her last entry. It reads, quote, June 25th, 1995. 
Got home from a weekend road trip to Iowa City. Oh, we had fun. It was wild, partying, and water skiing. We skied at the Coralville Reservoir. I'm improving on the skis. Hips up, lean, etc. John's son Trent gave me some great ski tip advice. Today, Sunday, it was raining in Mason City, so didn't get any skiing in. I love it, it's addicting. Great friends, but professionally I'm fed up. It's difficult finding a new job, and I'm confused about an agent and what to do. End quote. I always find it unsettling reading people's journals after they disappear or pass away. It was the same with Susan Cox Powell's journal entries. They're so intimate and personal, but it does give you an amazing insight into how they're feeling and what their life is like, because people will tell a journal things that they won't tell their friends. And it's not like an anecdotal, oh, I heard that Jodie said this from such a person. You can see it in her handwriting. You can see that that's what she said. And in Susan's case, her journal entries were absolutely pivotal in figuring out what happened to her. And we can see here that Jodie laments a little about her job. We know that she wanted to work national. Perhaps she was getting a little impatient with the local news. It is normal to feel like your career is stalling, especially if you are as goal-oriented and as goal-focused as Jodie clearly was. She loved her anchor position, but she wanted to be on national TV and it seemed as though she was struggling to figure out how to make the leap between local and national anchoring. June 26th, the Monday, Jodie went on air and delivered her news broadcast. When she signed off with her usual, I'm Jodie Hoosentrout, and a smile. She didn't know that it would be her last sign-off. After work, she went home, showered, and then went to a golf club to participate in a local golf tournament. Because remember, she fucking loved golf. She did it with a couple of her colleagues from the news station and had a really nice time mingling with some people at the club afterwards. The last person reportedly to have seen Jodie before she disappeared is John Van Sice. There is no evidence to back this up. We only have his description of this event. Some people believe that this is true, but like I said, there's no actual proof. John says that in the evening on June 26th, he invited Jodie over to his house to watch the videotape he got back of her birthday party. She arrived about 9pm and they watched it together. She stayed at his house somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. The thing is... His timeline is not consistent. He's also said on other occasions that she arrived at 8pm and also that she stayed till midnight. Then he said that she left at 11 or perhaps she left at 9. Basically, he said a whole bunch of times around this event and none of them quite line up properly. The only thing we do know is that she made a call from her apartment at 8.24pm. And the videotape itself is between 15 and 17 minutes long. There's lots of different accounts of this from John and fucking everyone online can't figure out for sure exactly how this works because his timeline is all over the place. But the short version is that John insists that she visited him that night and watched the tape with him and then went home. The following day, Jodie would vanish and we're going to get into what happened immediately following her abduction and the years since next week. <sighs> so I really hope that you enjoyed that. I know that this episode is a little bit shorter than what we used to because I haven't had anyone to bounce off. I've not had anyone to talk with 
I've not had anyone kind of like like bantering me and yeah it's it's been kind of weird talking to myself but I hope that you liked it anyway and I hope that you've learned a couple of new things about Jodie's case um and we will get into it next week I've got the next episode written already I'll record it really soon and it's really good to be back and I've missed this a lot so thank you for listening to me if you've got to the end and I'll see you soon. Bye.